Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Excellencies, uh, distinguished guests, leadership of NYU Abu Dhabi, esteemed colleagues and dearest friends, a heartfelt thank you for coming this evening. Uh, you could have been anywhere in the world, but you've decided to be here with us this evening, so we appreciate that very much. And to all our local and regional partners, salam alaikum. Violent extremism has been, I would say, a defining feature uh, of the post-9-11 era, and its rise has forced governments from Bali to Brussels to contend with a really tough question, which is, how do you deal with, how do you stop an enemy that's willing to fight and die, regardless of the cost, for a political or a religious cause? And answering this question is not easy. Because violent extremist offenders, I mean, they operate clandestinely, they're hard to get access to, and they have this very unfortunate habit of not signing up to our psychological studies on campus, um, despite, I would say, our uh, repeated and persistent invitations. So to examine violent extremism, you have to be out there. One needs to go out there. And for uh, more than a decade now, Rowan, Ari, and I have scoured the earth to go out there and survey and, and interview violent extremist offenders from a wide range of uh, political or religious ideologies. And the result of this social psychological examination of extremism, ideological violence, uh, is the book that you're seeing this evening here, The Three Pillars of Radicalization, Needs, Narrative, and Network. And this evening, each one of us is going to present a different aspect, different segment of the book. Um, to talk about our 3N model of radicalization. First, uh, distinguished professor Eric Kuglansky will begin this evening by introducing our theoretical framework, the 3N model of radicalization. I will then follow with a quick presentation on our de-radicalization uh, program. And Professor Gunaratna will then enlighten us with his very insightful, um, I would say, uh, practical insights, yes, related to working closely with uh, violent extremist offenders. And those of you that knows Rowan, I'm sure you'll be uh, not surprised if I were to mention that he's going to probably discuss some very colorful anecdotes. But please, Rowan, not too colorful this evening. <laughs> and after the presentation, uh, we'll open the floor for Q&As. Um, and we'll be delighted to engage with you in a conversation about uh, this timely and pressing topic. So please, without any further ado, uh, join me in welcoming distinguished professor Ari Kuglansky. Thank you, Jocelyn. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests, excellencies. I'm very pleased and honored to be here today with you at this renowned university in beautiful Abu Dhabi and share with you some ideas and some of our research on a troubling problem in the world today. Radicalization has been, in the last decades and continues to be, a major threat for, to global stability and security. Uh, it's true that ISIS has, been, has lost its caliphate, but it's far from being defeated. It's spreading its tentacles in various parts of the world. It's setting up governorates, wilayats, in Africa, various parts of Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, the Sahel, South, Southern Africa, uh, Southeast Asia, Southern Asia, Central Asia, the Middle East, 
uh, in Europe or actually on two sides of the Atlantic, white suprematism is raising its ugly head. Um, the spate of active massive shootings in the United States have a very frequently and typically an ideological xenophobic dimension. So radicalization, some people claim, has become a defining feature of 21st century, at least until now. How are we to understand this global threat? And more importantly, what can we do to respond to this threat? Today, I'm going to present to you a psychological perspective on the problem that I believe to be of crucial importance. Many political phenomena, phenomena that change the course of history, phenomena that determine the fate of nations, at root have a psychological dimensions that are rooted in the human nature. Macro-level factors such as poverty, oppression, poor education that have been invoked to explain radicalization, sometimes contribute to radicalization, sometimes they matter less, and sometimes they matter not at all. The question is why? And the answer is that they matter only when they activate the relevant psychological mechanism and not otherwise. So understanding this psychological mechanism is of critical importance uh, not only intellectually, but primarily in us being able to devise intelligent, effective ways of countering this pernicious phenomenon. Our book is based, as uh, Professor uh, Belanger uh, already indicated, on field research in various conflict regions of the world in Sri Lanka, in the Philippines, in the Middle East, Morocco, Northern Ireland, other places. And based on that research and based on prior work of social scientists, we have debe developed an integrative model. Integrative in the sense that it builds on prior insights, integrates it with known data that we have collected, and uh, offers a comprehensive perspective on the problem of radicalization. And this model consists of three ends, three parameters whose conjunction works together to produce this combustible mixture that produces uh, radicalization. These three ends are, the first one is the need. Everything that humans do is motivated, it's based on a need. So what is the need would be the question that motivates radicalization. The second end is the narrative. People talked a lot about the narrative, the ideology that underlies radicalization. This narrative <clears throat> is related to the need in that it informs people how to satisfy the need. And finally, the third end is the network, the social community that supports the narrative and validates it and dispenses rewards to those who implement the narrative. The book, again, uh, to reiterate what uh, Jocelyn has already said, consists of the model, and I'll be talking about it. The evidence that uh, Professor Belanger would talk about, and policy. Our policy expert is Professor Gunaratna, 
who has been running uh, the center of uh, research on this topic for the last uh, 20 years and has been uh, carrying out policy-related research all over the world. Now, let me unpack these three ends. What do they actually mean? The first end is the need. You know, violent extremism is conducted by individuals. At the end of the day, it's the individual who decides to pick up a weapon, to don a suicide belt, and to travel thousands of miles to a foreign country in order to risk their life and limb for a cause. What motivates individuals to do that? That has been an overriding question for terrorism research forever. And the answer that they offered was in terms of a list of motivations. Uh, devotion to the leader was one such motivation. Vengeance was another motivation. The perks of afterlife was another motivation. Feminism, showing that women can also do it, was another motivation. And all these motivations are valid descriptions of specific cases. But in science, we are not satisfied with lists. We are not satisfied with taxonomies. We are not satisfied with variety. We want to get to the gist, what underlies all these variant manifestations of motivation. And the answer that our research suggested that underlying all these instances is the human quest for significance and mattering, to be somebody, to have dignity, to be respected. How does it work? Take, for example, vengeance. Vengeance comes in response to perceived humiliation, perceived injustice, perceived uh, disempowerment, perceived exclusion. And in avenging that humiliation, one asserts one's significance. I'm not to be you know, trifled with. I, I can be important, I can hurt you, I can be powerful. Uh, take, for another example, the perks of afterlife. True, they are sweet in and of themselves, but above all and beyond their concrete advantages, they symbolize the great achievement, uh, the price for which is the perks of afterlife, and they celebrate your significance. So it's not just the, the material practice of afterlife, but rather what they symbolize. Being celebrated through a wedding, beautiful women, meeting the Prophet Muhammad, and so on and so forth. Great honor over and above the, the perks. Now, as with any motivation, this quest for significance, the, the quest for dignity and respect, uh, needs to be activated. Motivations are activated. Hunger is activated. Thirst is activated. This too, as with any motivation, has to be activated. How is it activated? It's activated by any event that <clears throat> makes significance acutely desirable. So, for example, loss of significance, humiliation, makes restoration of significance acutely desirable. <clears throat> and some loss of significance can be quite personal, have, having nothing to do with politics or ideology. You may have failed in your task. Uh, you may have been bullied or violated as a child by brutal attacks. Uh, we have examples of uh, 
people who volunteered for suicide missions because they suffered stigma in their lives. A Palestinian woman who was divorced, and that's a stigma, or who was infertile, and that's a stigma in a traditional society, or who was accused of marital, extramarital relations, a stigma again. And in all those cases, these women volunteered to be uh, shahids in order to restore their, their lost significance. Now, the personal loss of significance is only one of two varieties. A more pervasive loss of significance is your loss of significance to your social identity. Social identity as a Muslim, social identity as an American, social identity as a woman, uh, a gay person, whoever. If that loss of identity occurs, you feel that you yourself personally suffer a loss of significance. If other, your brethren, are slaughtered, are raped, are violated, members of your group, you feel that it's your honor that has been compromised and you feel the need to uh, stand up and fight. And when you do that, this opens an opportunity for a tremendous significance gain. You are going to be celebrated. You're going to be honored and respected as a hero, as a martyr, as a shaheed to your community. You'll be forever. Your name will be forever engraved in the collective uh, memory of your group. Now the second end, the narrative. You know, the quest for significance is a, a universal and fundamental human motivation. We all have it. As the humanist Jean Vanier wisely said, all of us have a secret desire to be seen as saints, heroes, and martyrs. Uh, indeed, the quest for significance and respect is one of the most basic human motivations. The little infant why vice for attention because otherwise it will not survive. Uh, adults too vie for attention. Nobody wants to feel disrespected. Linda Lohman in Arthur Miller's famous play, The Death of a Salesman, in the Ultimate Dialogue, says attention must be paid. Indeed, attention must be paid, significance must be had, but the question is how? How is significance to be attained? And the answer is in the cultural narrative. It tells you what do you need to do in order to be significant. And to be significant, you have to demonstrate, maybe through sacrifice of your life, of your other interest, sacrifice your commitment to the value, the group value. It could be courage, it could be honor, it could be honesty, it could be materialism to be rich, but it's the group values to which you demonstrate commitment that lends you significance. So significance trickles down from the value that the group upholds and it's spelled out in the narrative to, uh, to, to your actions in service of that value. In other words, in the case of a violence justifying narrative that justifies and promotes violence, the, the narrative links violence as a means of gaining significance. Uh, our friend Scott Atran talked about sacred values. It's the defense of sacred values that gives one significance. Values that are sacred to one's group. 
The third N is the networks. And the networks have a, a, a two cardinal functions. First, they validate the narrative. And secondly, they dispense rewards to those who abide by the dictates of the narrative. Why do they have to validate the narrative? Because as social being, beings, we need the group to forge with us a shared reality. We are not alone in the world. Our worldviews are anchored in group consensus. People who we respect, our in-group, they define for us what is real. So the group has what we call epistemic authority. They tell you if the network, your family, your friends suggest that the narrative is valid, then you believe the narrative. So the issue of network is tightly interwoven with the idea of narrative. Narrative that is not supported by a network would not be credible. You need a network. What kind of network? The, the types of network can vary widely from a proximal face-to-face -face group that Mark Sageman, our colleague Mark Sageman, talked about, all the way to chats on the, on, on the internet, uh, communications online, uh, even imagined network, as in the case of Andres Brevik, he imagined that he's representing a Knights Templar, or assumed network. Sometimes it doesn't have to be a face-to-face -face network. Sometimes you know what your community thinks. You know that your community would appreciate if you pick up a vehicle and ram it into a bunch of people. If you pick up a machete, and slaughter somebody. If you pick up a knife and, and sting somebody, uh, you know that, or if you pick up a, an AK-47 and shoot a bunch of people, you know that there is a community out there that is going to admire you, to appreciate you. You do not have to be told. Now, I said that this particular research, as with all science, builds on other people's insights. So what is novel about it? The novelty is in its integration, whereas previous authors each emphasized a single element of this triumvirate, either the ideology or the need or the network. We are bringing them together in an integrated functional whole. That's how it works. You have a need, but without knowing how the need would be fulfilled, it's not going to work. You can be humiliated Many people are humiliated without resorting to violence. So you need the narrative to tell you what you need to do in order to restore your, your significance. Uh, you need a network. Without a network, it's not going to be credible. People need social support. And let me illustrate what I mean by this integration by a briefly reviewing three major alternative models that uh, we build upon. One is by uh, Professor Ted Gurr, uh, my uh, former colleague at the University of Maryland, who had a very famous book called Why Men Rebel, published in 1970. And his main emphasis was on the concept of relative deprivation, a group that feels that it is not receiving just desserts. It's relatively deprived into what should be coming to them. That's the crux of radicalization. That's the crux of when, why men rebel. And as you can notice, this relates very clearly to our quest for significance. The, the, the group feels slighted. 
But our uh, variable, our factor of, of quest for significance is broader. Uh, it can re relate to personal loss of significance, stigma, uh, failure, uh, and so forth. It doesn't have to be group relative deprivation. In addition, it's not just the relative deprivation per se. You need the narrative and you need the network. So in, in other words, yes, Ted Gur has a very important insight, but our framework broadens it and uh, encases it into a functional model of how action happens. Another very important model uh, was by our friend and colleague Scott Atran. He talked about the importance of sacred values, devoted actors who are devoted to sacred values. But why exactly it is that sacred values motivate violence? Why would an individual want to defend sacred values? The reason is that sacred values, if you stand up for your values, if you are a hero to your group, you satisfy your quest for significance. The, at the end of the day, uh, the buck stops here. It has to relate to human motivation. Without it, it's unclear why we should sacred value motivate anything. Yes, they are very important because they respond to human quest for significance. Uh, Mark Sageman talked about the importance of the network, terrorist network. Yes, networks are very important, but not just any network. A tennis club or a golf club is a network, but it does not necessarily uh, motivate violence. It has to be a network that is committed to a given narrative that justifies violence, not any network. People talk about macro factors uh, that I mentioned, poverty, oppression, poor education. And the literature, by and large, dismiss them. Okay, you know, they do not uh, necessarily cause uh, violent extremism, but they could be contributing to violent extremism if you are uh, oppressed, if you are poorly educated, have, have no opportunities, uh, if you are uh, poor. This could motivate a quest for significance and uh, with a right narrative or the right network, you can be vulnerable to radicalization, more so that somebody who is sated, who is wealthy, who, is, who feels free. So by and large, they could be contributing factors. One should not dismiss them all too readily. And finally, deradicalization. If these three factors, the needs, the narratives, and the networks are so critical to radicalization, should they not be also involved in reversing the process? And indeed they are. We have evidence that all three factors play a role in the radicalization. The narrative, all the major radicalization programs rely on, on uh, uh, the narrative element, a counter messaging uh, element that uh, attempts to dissuade people from the belief that violence confers significance and heroism and martyrdom. Uh, of course, in considering messaging, it's not just any messaging. It has to be a messaging that responds to the need, understanding that what motivates adherence to the message is the need for significance. So the counter message should offer an alternative to significance. Um, in other words, all of these factors are relevant, but one has to consider them in combination. 
And finally, the need itself. Uh, when the need for significance is overridden by other needs that asserts their importance, quest for significance is important, but it's not the only thing. We also quest relatedness. We want family. We want uh, to, uh, to have some comfort. When those other needs are aroused, the quest for significance is mitigated and a person is motivated to find alternatives to violence. And here is a very uh, interesting quote from a member of the ETA, the Basque terrorist organization, who decided to leave the organization at some point. And uh, our friend Fernando Reynares uh, interviewed him and that's what the man had to say. You say to yourself, shit man, I better get myself a life because time is running out. It's a matter of being that much older, and in my case specifically, of wanting to get married. You're going on 40 years old, you're going to get married next year, and you say to yourself, well, shit man, I mean at this stage of the game to go packing a piece, that would be a bit because you just got to the S word. Well, we've all got to live a bit. Thank you very much. So in the next uh, few minutes, I'd like to um, tell you about our research uh, on derecusation. I'd like to marinate you in a bit of uh, empirical data to show you that derecusation is possible. Um, as I've mentioned, one of the toughest questions I think for governments worldwide uh, is this question of like, how do you deal with people that are willing to fight and die regardless of the cost to further a political or religious cause? Or cause. And I think that too often the answer to this very question has been kinetic, meaning that acts of wanton cruelty and brutality are only met uh, with military might. But as the last two decades of counterterrorism have demonstrated, the response to terrorism needs to be more comprehensive, right? It needs to encompass not just a kinetic approach, but something else. And interestingly, Sri Lanka, which is reeling from one of the deadliest terrorist uh, attacks in modern history, has a solution to provide that is not just kinetics. And so for psychologists like me, one of the most significant aspects of Sri Lanka's latest suicide strike, which killed more than 250 people uh, on Easter Sunday, it's how the violence was organized. According to authorities, men inspired by the Islamic State use family ties in order to recruit members, galvanize them, and also to uh, keep plans secret. And this is a classic formula for, of radicalization. You have a bunch of guys, usually, right, call it a cell, that are bond, uh, bonded over sacred values, like you've described, uh, Ari, and progressively, they're willing to defend their secret values regardless of the cost. That's the, the, the key word here. But I would like to submit to you this evening that, that there's also strong evidence to suggest that the opposite is also true. And by this, I mean that the same elements that give rise to violent extremism can reverse this process. And I think that lessons from Sri Lanka's previous civil war actually bear this out. And today I'd like to show you how that's possible. So at the end of, um, um, let me see here. Um, so my colleagues and I, Rohan, Arie, Marshanti, we've been uh, essentially like, you know, investigating the derecusation program of yet another group of Sri Lankan terrorists, the Tamil Tigers, also known as the LTTE. 
And we developed a theory, the 3N model, to explain how radicalization might be brought about, but also how to reverse that process. And of the countless de-radicalization programs that governments have created, only a handful really have opened their doors to scientists to investigate whether you know, bringing about de-radicalization is possible. But the Sri Lankan program is one notable effort that I would like to speak about today. And so at the end of the country's bloody civil war uh, in 2009, about 11,500 uh, Tamil Tigers were detained and exposed to a de-radicalization uh, program. But instead of only highlighting, let's say, the moral and or theological bankruptcy of uh, violent extremism, the Sri Lankan program was quite unique. They thought to empower detainees in order to help them reintegrate mainstream society. So for instance, in these rehabilitation uh, programs, uh, the LTTE were exposed to a slew of initiatives, educational uh, training, vocational, recreational, spiritual, psychosocial social activities. So really from job training to yoga. And the goal was to engage uh, these uh, Tamil Tigers to transform their violent attitudes and to change their behavior so they can walk away from terrorism. And what's interesting about you know, these programs is perhaps in a, let's say, post hoc way, they sought to recalibrate the individual's three ends towards something uh, that's more uh, peaceful. By this, I mean that the need element of our theory was addressed by addressing these uh, Tamil tigers with respect and dignity. For example, they were calling them beneficiaries as opposed to hardcore killers or terrorists or whatnot. The network element was addressed with family, uh, family rehabilitation and community uh, reintegration. Last but not the least, the narrative element was addressed with dialogue about the ineffectiveness of war and also emphasizing the importance of tolerance and coexistence. And these efforts have really paid off. So like I said earlier, I'd like to marinate you in a bit of data to show you to what extent uh, these programs were effective. We had access to a group of 490 Tamil Tigers that benefited from a full treatment program. So that's the whole range of initiatives that I've mentioned to you earlier. And we compared these groups to, let's say, a control baseline condition that was made of 111 Tamil Tigers that are part of a minimal treatment program. So only a subset of the initiatives of the full treatment program. And we gave them several batteries of psychological tests, but most importantly, we were interested in their support for violent extremism. And we measured their attitudes over a one-year period at three uh, different time points, each separated by a six-month uh, six interval. And these are the results. This is the only figure you'll see published in scientific literature showing the effectiveness of a de-acquisition program. On the x-axis, you have the three time points, time one, time two, and time three. On the y-axis, you have support for, for extremism. And what you're seeing is that at time one, the two groups don't differ, right? They just got into the reintegration program. But as time goes on, you see these two slopes tend to diverge. And what you're observing is that the full treatment program, the pink line, um, is measurably uh, lower in support from extremism than people in the minimal treatment program. That line, the minimal treatment program, tends to go down, but it's not significant. So they don't change um, statistically over time. So these results speak to the importance uh, with the effectiveness of the program. But what about the ingredients of that psychological process and how does it unfold necessarily over time? What we showed is that the more people develop a positive attitude toward the rehabilitation center, the more it made sense to them. They were happy with you know, be, them being part of that reintegration program. The more they felt significant six months later. 
And in turn, their feeling of significance predicted you know, their support for extremism in a negative way. So meaning that the more they felt significant, the less extreme, the less supportive of violence they were. So here you have a nice psychological progression over time of uh, the de-radicalization program. Now what about long-term success? These people have now reintegrated mainstream uh, society. We want to obviously uh, these people not to go back uh, to uh, violent extremism. So here what we've done is we examine extreme attitudes among beneficiaries that were released from the rehabilitation uh, program and we compare them to those with the community of Tamils who never been part of the Tamil Tigers. In other words, we compare the former terrorists that were part of a rehabilitation program to the people from the same community but that were never part of these radical groups. Let's just focus on the former LTTE for a second. What we show is that, you know, when they reported, the greater the number of programs they were part of during their reintegration and rehabilitation, the more significant as a person they felt, and therefore, the less supportive of uh, terrorism they were. So that's very, very interesting. But now I think the next figure is the most striking of them all. What you see here when you compare the former members of the LTT to the member of Tamils that are part of the community, we found actually that former um, violent extremists reported less support from extremism than members of the community. Now, this is not self-evident that you find these type of results. Perhaps you would have expected that former terrorists would still be very high on their support from, uh, for, for violence, or perhaps to the same level as members of the community, but here we show that it's drastically less. So I think that speaks volume to the effectiveness of uh, this deracquisition program in particular. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that we were able to reverse engineer the psychological and the social element that enable violent extremism. This suggests also that, that, that providing alternate means of attaining personal significance, but also enabling people to be part of like a peaceful social network, well, that enables people to turn away from violent uh, ideologies. And in addition to this, I would say that by doing so, by doing these type of programs, you know, community resilience is strengthened and community dialogue is also enhanced. So in conclusion, I would like to leave you with my favorite aphorism from Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche said that, beware that when fighting monsters, you yourself do not become a monster. For when you gaze long into the abyss, the abyss also gazes into you. And so what this means, I think, in the context of terrorism is that our default response to wanton cruelty and brutality, well, it's vengeance and retaliation. That temptation is very strong. But when we enact this desire, we too become violent, right? And we are only, I would say, fueling further radicalization. And I think that's an issue. So we need a kinetic approach to fight terrorism, obviously. But also, this should be done exclusively without including the more strategic, softer response of de-radicalization. Because clearly, uh, what the results here are showing is that this is a very promising avenue to countering terrorism. And if we don't include that softer strategy in our counterterrorism repertoire, I think we're at risk of losing the humanistic values that makes coexistence possible. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to begin with a story. Soon after 9-11, the United States asked me to interview a terrorist called John Walker Lind. He's a very handsome American man. 
bit like my friend. But yeah. I'm Canadian. <laughs> he has golden hair, you know, blonde hair, white skin, taller than my friend. And uh, they took me to a facility in the United States. I cannot tell you the name of that facility, but I want to share with you that I asked the guard who was there to remove the handcuffs of John Walker Lind. John Walker Lind had been captured in Afghanistan and the US Department of Defense labeled him as a member of Al-Qaeda. And I was asked to determine whether he was actually a member of Al-Qaeda. So when I asked the guard to remove the handcuffs, the guard said, I can't do that. I will lose my job. So I met John Wokalin. We sat on the floor and we discussed for a few days. I asked him, you are an American. Your father is a lawyer. You went to a school in San Francisco. You converted to Islam. He watched Malcolm X. He was very inspired by Islam. And then he read the Quran. He was very young. And he converted. Then he went to Egypt. Went to Yemen. In Yemen, he studied under a radical cleric called Sheikh Mukbil. Then went to Pakistan. Eventually entered Afghanistan. Trained in Afghanistan. And joined the Taliban. Taliban had an elite unit called the 055 Brigade, which was frontline fighters. He served with that unit. US had classified him at that time as Al-Qaeda. But I knew based on my travels to Afghanistan that he was not Al-Qaeda, he was Taliban. Because Taliban also had foreign fighters. Then I asked John Wokalin, how did you feel watching the Twin Towers collapsing? What was your feeling, your thinking? Fellow Americans being killed. And then he said that he felt very sad about it. But he also spoke of the suffering of the Muslims at that time. Then eventually I asked him, what do you think of the bombing of the Bamiyan Buddha images in Afghanistan? I didn't tell John Wokalin that I was a Buddhist. Then John Wokalin put his hands up. He was handcuffed, you know. He was like this. And he said, I thought that was great. For me, it was like the Lenin and the Stalin statues coming down after the end of communism. Then I asked John Wokalind, do you know what's going to happen to you? I said, you're going to go to prison for a very long time. Because a CIA officer was killed in one of the prison facilities. The CIA officer went to interview people and there was a riot and the Americans assumed that John, John Walker Lind was involved in instigating that riot. So I said, you may even get death. 
Then I asked John Wakalind, would you wear a US military uniform and travel with me to Afghanistan to fight Al-Qaeda and Taliban to be a part of the US forces? And he agreed. So I want to share with you that it is significance that terrorists want. This significance, ladies and gentlemen, is not only in the current life, but also in the afterlife. Many of the terrorists we interviewed, they said that there are five rewards that motivated them. One is entry to paradise. Second is audience with God. Third is forgiven for sins and vices. And the next is you can take 70 relatives to heaven. You can take your mother, your father, your children. And finally, they believe that you will also get 72 beautiful girls. These girls, there is eternal beauty. We all become old, you know. But in heaven, they say that the girls don't become old. They look the same, eternity. So, radical clerics present this narrative. And it is very attractive. I also asked a terrorist cleric, what does a woman get? <laughs> and I myself was shocked because I had interviewed so many of them. But I never got this answer. Then he said, Professor, don't worry. We have an answer to that too. During the process of transmigration to heaven, that woman will turn into a man. <laughs> and she will also be rewarded with 72 oh beauties. So I asked the ladies here, don't try it. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, the contemporary wave of terrorism began in 1979 with three pivotal events. One was the Soviet invasion of Af Afghanistan, December 25, 1979, where 20 to 30,000 fighters came to Pakistan, fought against the Soviet army. That created the Mujahideen pool of fighters that continue to fight to this date in Iraq, Syria, and also in Afghanistan now and in other theatres of conflict. This is a pivotal event. Second is a revolution in Iran, also in 1979. Third is also an event in 1979, where the, the Mecca was sieged, the Grand Mosque. And of course, the Saudis had to rely on the French GIGN to come and clear the situation. These three events shaped the contemporary wave of terrorism. Al-Qaeda itself was born at the end of the anti-Soviet multinational Afghan Mujahideen campaign. 
that was 79 to February 89. Al-Qaeda was created on August 11, 1988. And with the birth of Al-Qaeda, we saw that a small group of 3,000 fighters emerged. And they believe that they are the vanguard, the pioneering vanguard of the Islamic movements. That is why they attacked the United States, America's most iconic landmarks, the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and the last plane, the fourth plane, was heading to Congress because White House is covered with trees. By attacking America's most iconic economic, military, and political landmark, they galvanized, they want to galvanize Muslim groups around the world. The Islamic State, the group that is now operating in Iraq and Syria with vilayats or provinces in northern Nigeria, the threat spreading to, to Mali, Niger, Chad, Cameroon, and also the threat moving from the north, the Maghreb, Algeria, and Libya to the Sahel, the threat moving from Egypt, the Sinai Peninsula to mainland Egypt, the threat in Yemen, the threat in the Caucasus, in Khorasan, Afghanistan and Pakistan expanding to Central Asia with the creation of new vilayats or new provinces in Pakistan, India and Sri Lanka. And the furthest vilayat in the Philippines, the East Asia vilayat covering both Northeast Asia and Southeast Asia demonstrates that terrorism has entered a new phase of terrorism. So what do we do about this? Because there are tens of thousands of radicalized terrorists in prison today. And there are several hundreds of thousands of radicalized Muslims in conflict zones and elsewhere. So it is vital for us to build programs terrorist rehabilitation programs. And I want to share with you, based on our experience, the programs that we have built, including one program, 10 years ago, Professor Ari Kruklansky, myself, and two of our colleagues came to UAE. We helped UAE to build their program. Is that we approach the terrorist and we identify what is going on in his mind. What has driven him to radicalization? What has given, driven him to even to kill himself, kill others with the objective of going to heaven? And we've developed a six-pronged model. We implemented this model in a number of countries. And I want to share with you what are the six approaches to rehabilitation. One is religious and spiritual rehabilitation. This is a very powerful medium of rehabilitation where we ask a cleric to listen to the, what the detainee has to say. Then he will understand, okay, this guy has a wrong notion of jihad. So when we do the baseline survey, as soon as someone is brought to custody, we'll ask, what is your understanding of jihad? Say it's to kill white people. It is to kill non-Muslims. 
But after a mainstream cleric interacts with that terrorist, that terrorist will say it is to strive to be a good human being. So you can see the power of a cleric. Another phrase that almost all the terrorists are influenced by is called Al-Walah Walbara. Loyalty to Muslims and hatred to non-Muslims. But if you look at its application, it has been loyalty to the state and to good people and disavowal or disassociation from bad people. So you can see how Islam has been misinterpreted and misrepresented by these groups. So cleric is a very important pillar in rehabilitation or in de-radicalization. Second is educational rehabilitation. Teachers are very patient. And many of these terrorists, not all, are poorly educated. So we have to get them to think critically, introduce mathematics, philosophy, science, not only just religion. The third is social and family rehabilitation, a very powerful medium for rehabilitation. In Sri Lanka, my colleagues in government told me those who are in detention are very hard, very difficult to de-radicalize them. So I said, Let, let's start with the wives and the children. Because one child came and told the mother, both my father and you have destroyed my life. We have no money to go to school. So I asked a Muslim foundation to give that parent money so that the child goes to school because the breadwinner is in custody. He's a deep water fisherman but had assisted the terrorist group that conducted the Easter Sunday attacks. So work with the children and work with the wives. Another Muslim foundation agreed to pay 5,000 rupees so that the wife can put food on the table, pay the electricity bill. So I want to share with you that social and family rehab is a very powerful instrument because that terrorist who is in custody will think when the wife visits him, when he sees the daughter, Father, I am going to school again. Who is doing this? It is government working with foundations and individuals. So it's a very powerful media. Professor Hari always said, very difficult to change someone's mind. The way to change someone's mind is through the stomach. It's through the stomach to change the heart. So I want to share with you, ladies and gentlemen, social and family rehabilitation is a very powerful tool to change someone. Even if I hit someone and I say, you know, it is like this, that person will not listen. You have to approach indirectly. Another very important prong of rehabilitation is creative arts in rehab. Song, dance, music, puppetry. Music has mesmerized people for a millennia. Let us use music. Changes human beings.
another is recreational rehabilitation ports don't put the guards in the prison playing against the detainees mix the teams and play you can watch the aggression whether they have been tamed their attitude to the guards point of measurement finally vocational rehabilitation when someone is in custody it's a great moment to rehabilitate that person and i want to share with you you can train him in fishery agriculture carpentry woodwork metal work mat weaving computers but we have to identify what ticks that person that is why that initial needs assessment is imperative and finally psychological rehabilitation all the terrorists we have interviewed in africa in the middle east in europe north america asia we have all sensed in their heart some hurt only a psychologist can read that sometimes psychologist is expensive so we get the psychologist to train the counselors and those counselors will spend quite a lot of time so that those detainees they will tell their stories and gradually you can replace that hurt with love let me conclude by saying that if you don't rehabilitate a terrorist what will happen can you tell me there are three things that will happen one is when the terrorist leaves prison or the detention center we'll go and commit terrorism we'll perform acts of violence because the mind has not been changed so it is imperative for us to build such programs in all prison and detention centers second is that person will disseminate his or her ideology because he believes in it he believes that he is fighting for god against those who are opposing god the satan that is why they call government forces to good satan satan so that mindset has to be changed third is the terrorist who is not rehabilitated will become a part of the terrorist iconography meaning will be hailed as a hero so it is vital for us to talk to them and to de-radicalize them get them to speak get them to write get them to appear on television get them to speak to other radical terrorists very effective if we don't do that there will be a group of terrorists who will graduate from those prisons and they will be violent they will be propagandists and they will be hailed as heroes 
Today, the world is moving to a new phase of terror. President Trump said that ISIS has been defeated. I disagree with him. ISIS is entering a new phase of global expansion. Bagus, the last territorial stronghold of the Islamic State. IS was defeated there. But Abu Bakr al-Baghdad is alive with his leaders and members. They have moved to the Euphrates Valley and from there they have sent hundreds of their fighters to alternative zones of conflict. This happened in March. But in April, on the 21st, on Easter Sunday, it's a devastating terrorist attack that demonstrated the new face of terror where terrorists are radicalizing the population through cyberspace and in physical space. Because the main human resource pool of the terrorists is the general population, what you call the human terrain. To protect that, we need, in addition to the rehabilitation programs or the DRED programs, where we engage those who are in custodial settings. We need in parallel community engagement programs to identify where the terrorist attacks have happened. What schools have produced these terrorists? What mosques there has been sermons by radical clerics? And then engage the populations there to have community engagement programs. In addition to these two, we also need to invest sufficiently in the internet. Internet, today the terrorists are spending more time on the net than in physical space. So we need to have programs online to de-radicalize, de to engage and de-radicalize terrorists. We need programs built in cyberspace where <clears throat> a radical will enter a website thinking Oh, this is good for my spirit and soul. But when he goes there gradually, he will get de-radicalized. So ladies and gentlemen, let me share with you that simply by fighting fire with fire, that is operational counterterrorism, what you call kinetic counterterrorism, catch, kill or disrupt, we cannot end the current wave of terrorism. We need something more than that to engage and to de-radicalize. Then to launch programs both inside and in physical space to prevent the radicalization of innocent people. I thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.